Our relationship to any message matters, doesn't it? To any message that we hear or see. It matters because a smiley-faced emoji text from a friend just acknowledging, hey, I got your message and I don't want to kill you, uh, is less important than a message from your doctor telling you that you're pregnant, right? Those two messages, you have a different relationship with each of those messages. Some messages matter very little to us. Like, let's say the message your math teacher gave you when you were in school about how to solve an algebraic equation. That one doesn't matter to you very much. You just want to learn it so you can, you know, deliver it on a test and then it's gone. Some of you are math nerds and that matters to you very much, but you are the tiny, tiny minority in the world (laughs) and you're weird. Uh, But the message that the job interview, uh, that, that you landed it, you did a great job and you now have the job of your dreams, that message matters to you. Even though that that employer is just sharing words with you, that message has the power to transform your life, doesn't it? The scam message in your inbox saying that you've won a million dollars if you'll just give up all your personal information to someone who's from some distant land, you know, you, you don't even give that a second glance. But if you receive a message inviting you to receive a great award, let's say a Nobel Peace Prize or something just monumental, then you are gonna memorize every detail. You're gonna memorize it dozens of times. There's also a lot of confusing messages out there today where people are left not knowing what to believe. We can get that every time we turn on the news, regardless of what vantage point the news is delivered through. And I guess it's nothing new. Have you ever heard of the infamous story of the War of the Worlds radio broadcast directed by Orson Welles in 1938. Raise your hand. So some of you. Okay, I learned about this in school. It's crazy. So Halloween morning, 1938, Orson Welles awoke to find himself the most talked about man in America. The night before, Welles and his Mercury Theater on the air had performed a radio adaption of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds, converting the 40-year-old novel into fake news bulletins describing a Martian invasion of New Jersey. This really happened. Some listeners, many listeners in fact, mistook those bulletins for the real thing and their anxious phone calls to police, newspaper offices, and radio stations convinced many journalists that the show had caused nationwide hysteria. By the next morning, the 23-year-old Wells' face and name were on the front pages of every newspaper coast-to-coast, along with headlines about the mass panic his CBS broadcast had allegedly inspired. So Wells barely had time to glance at the papers, leaving him with only a horribly vague sense of what he had done to the country. He'd heard reports, catch this, of mass stampedes, of suicides, and of angered listeners threatening to shoot him on sight. People thought that a Martian invasion had actually happened. It's difficult to find a factual story these days that's worth giving our lives to, because we hear all kinds of news and it all claims to be true. But we live for the most powerful message ever given. We live for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the message that he has forgiven us of our sins, and restore, is going to restore all things. 
And that's what we're celebrating tonight in the start of our series on Romans. And we'll be in the book of Romans for the next three years. Now, I don't know how long. I can't even put an end date on it. It's going to be a while. But for the foreseeable future... And tonight, I want to look at six questions that we're going to ask from chapter one that'll help us to understand the powerful relationship that we're called to have with the gospel. So let's pray before we jump in here. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your gospel. Lord, I've never heard that song that we just sang by Phil Wickham uh, that, that Matt led us in, but Lord, how powerful that is, proclaiming that it's by your death and it's by your resurrection, that life came, breath came to that buried body in the tomb, and now we have new life. And now we know it in part, and one day we'll know it fully, even as we're fully known. And we thank you for that, Jesus, and pray that you would breathe your power into this message. Lord, it's in your precious name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. All right, so now get on your trampoline, or if you want to do Pilates, you can follow. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, So Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported to all the world. God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated, both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The German monk Martin Luther was taught that he must live a righteous life in order to be saved from his sins. And this stirred in him a great hatred for God because he realized that God was asking, according to his perspective, the impossible. And it is indeed impossible for any of us to live a righteous life on our own efforts. And Luther's fury at God was fueled also by his perspective that not only had God asked the impossible of him, but then he had left him to carry out this righteous life with no help. 
And that was the teaching that he would have been familiar with at that time. But then like dynamite, he read one simple verse in Romans chapter 1 that exploded in his soul. And it changed his life and it revived a a true and right and life-giving perspective of the gospel in Germany and even to the Protestant Reformation. In fact, the gospel that we preach today is on the shoulders of those faith giants. So this one verse that really is the linchpin to understanding of all of Romans and even all of the gospel is Romans chapter 1, verse 17, this verse that Martin Luther read. It says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This enlightenment that righteousness came by faith led to the recovery of the gospel. And it can do so in our lives as well. And Romans is about the gospel. This letter that Paul wrote just 57 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wanted them to first understand the gospel. And then he wanted them to experience the gospel in every area of their lives. And Paul wasn't even acquainted with these Christians in Rome. He didn't even know who they were. But he was familiar with some of the tensions they were facing. You know, for example, a big one was this tension between uh, uh, Gentile and Jewish Christians who were starting to uh, add to the gospel necessary bridges that they, uh, they thought that they had to cross like circumcision in order to know Jesus. Romans was written to show these early believers and believers for all time that the gospel makes sinners righteous. And that this precious gift of the gospel makes monumental changes in our life. So let's start by looking at this man who was set aside by God as a reflection of one who had a fitting and powerful relationship with the gospel. Again, answering one of six questions that we'll go through tonight that will help us understand the powerful relationship that we're to have to the gospel. So what was Paul's relationship to the gospel is the first This letter starts with an explanation of what makes Paul's heart tick. It's easy to look at Paul's life and think that, you know, he was all that, you know, that he had it all together. But really, it was the message of the gospel that empowered his radical sacrifice. His life had been transformed by the gospel. And as a result, his life's work was to make the gospel known to all the nations. And if there's one thing that I want us to get from tonight, from Romans chapter 1, it's The life that's been transformed by the gospel will seek with all of its heart, all of its mind, all of its strength to make the gospel known. If we fail to open our mouths for the gospel, it means that there is shame in our hearts for the gospel. Period. That's why there are so so many ministries like IFI who are looking for opportunities, looking for relationships with other believers who will step up and say, I believe this. And Paul had to risk life and limb. We've got to put an email on a website and show up once a week, once every two weeks. As I read this chapter, I was convicted. And I was convicted along these lines. Silence equals shame with the gospel, period. 
Verse 1 starts out describing Paul as a servant. And the word here, uh, if you've ever spent more than two seconds with Roger Jackson, you know that he loves this. The word here, most, most, most uh, Bibles translated as servant, but the word here, doulos, actually means slave. Paul is under the authority of a master, under the authority of King Jesus. And we also see in chapter 1 here that he's called to be an apostle. An apostle is a sent one. So Paul's commitment to the gospel is not some mere obligation or job description. It's a calling. It's a commission, you could say, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the risen Lord. And you can, you can read about their interaction, Paul and the risen Christ, in the book of Acts. Paul was set apart to be an apostle. That is to take the gospel to the nations, to be a slave for it for the rest of his life. And to Paul, the gospel is beyond amazing, and he's willing to distance himself from wealth, from health, from friends, from popularity, from influence. You know, the health and wealth gospel is popular today. Paul practiced the opposite. He lost his health. He lost his wealth. He lost his relationships for the sake of the gospel, and he said that by those weaknesses, he was made rich. He was smitten, he was captured, he was sold out for this message that he proclaimed. And it's because the story is true. And that moves us into the second question. I mean, why would Paul make such sacrifices? What's the content of the gospel is the second question. What's the content? I mean, what gospel would make Paul, in his own words, make him happy to lose all things for the message contained in it? Because it's not just, the gospel's not just advice to be followed. It's not just directions for a better life. It's, it's much, 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 much more. You see, in the first century, if an emperor won a victory in a distant land, okay, now they have sovereign territory in a foreign place. They have peace uh, in their kingdom in a foreign place. They have victory in a foreign place. They would not go themselves. They would send a herald or a messenger in their place to pronounce victory. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. It's a proclamation of what has already been done. It's not true only if someone accepts it. It's an event in history that Jesus Christ has indeed risen, and he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him, that there is no other way to be made right with God. To say anything else is to say that everything recorded about Jesus is a lie. And it makes the Bible obsolete. Also, the message, according to verse 1, speaking of the content of chapter 1, it says that the message is of God. So Paul wasn't communicating a message from his own perspective. Uh, the message has been, and, or was then, and it's always been very unpopular. He was just the herald. And this is a good reminder that we're not to, make, that we're not to reshape the message to make it more palatable. Do you know what, to me, one of the greatest proofs of the gospel, practically speaking, is? Do you know the gospel was seen as foolishness among the Romans who didn't follow Christ? Guess what their religions were all about? Worshiping foreign gods through orgies and other things. No one now, I'm sure, I mean, these days you can find somebody of every stripe and type. But practically speaking, 
nothing they followed. Those ancient Greek gods are a thing of the past. But even then, it was seen as foolish and offensive, even though they were sacrificing children to foreign gods. And today, it's still seen as foolish, and it will always be seen as foolish. The gospel has always been terribly powerful, but it's also always been terribly offensive, and that will never change. And that's why we're tempted to feel shame when we share it, because it is offensive. I'll never forget sharing the gospel with a man at Goodell Park. And I never push it down anybody's throat, but this was a God-ordained opportunity. His name was George. Years and years ago when we planted the church, I'm there all by myself preparing a message. And I just run into this guy. And he said, Chris, why? You know, we've been talking for an hour or so now. You can talk about Buddha. You can talk about Muhammad. You can talk about anything else. And I'm not offended. But the second you talk about Jesus, I'm filled with anger. There's just something about Jesus. And the gospel, according to verse 2, again, speaking towards the content, is nothing new. It came through the prophets recorded in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is the foundation, so to speak, of the gospel. The foundation of a building is something you can't see, but it's very important. So in the Old Testament, we can't obviously see the gospel in every verse, but when we back up, we look at it and say, oh, that's what you were pointing to. And now we live in the house of the New Testament that makes it uh, very clear. It's in living color. Verse 3 also gets at the guts of the gospel. It says that it's about God's son. It centers on Jesus. The whole gospel is about Jesus. And, you know, we can't understand the gospel until we realize that it's not primarily a message about our lives, our dreams, and our hopes. It may... It may uh, It will change all of those, and it certainly transforms all those things, but only because it's not about us. It's about a person. It's not just a set of ideas or a philosophy. It's about a person, a rescuer. It's about a Messiah. It's about King Jesus. Verse 3 additionally says that Jesus is a descendant of David. That is King David, so he's fully human. And it also said It also says that he was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's also divine. And the reason why that's important that he's fully human and fully God is his humanness allows him to relate to our brokenness and our temptation and our frailty. He's fully human. He's got the scars right now in heaven. He's fully human in heaven now as he reigns at the right hand of the Father. But he's also fully God, so he can conquer sin. He can conquer sin that separates us from God. And he can restore our broken relationship with him. So the gospel is both a declaration of Jesus' perfect rule and an invitation to come under that perfect rule and make him our king. It is not a religion. Simply put, it's not a philosophy. It's not a good set of ideas. It is a declaration of his rule and reign and our submission to it, that our whole lives must come under it. Our third question, again, that we're answering to see the powerful relationship that we can and should have with the gospel is also part of the content, and it deepens our understanding of how the Lord wants to change our lives through the gospel. And that is, what is the gospel call? What, is it call- what does the gospel call us to? It says in verse 5 of Romans 1, Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. 
So obedience comes from faith. So simply put, the gospel is about trusting and obeying Christ. And we're able to trust and obey because of the gift of faith in him that's given to us. You know, it says in the Bible that even the demons believe in God and they shudder. Mere cognitive assent to the gospel is not enough. Belief here is getting to life transformation. It changes us from the inside out. It doesn't mean the gospel call is not you should somehow attain faith. You should somehow get it on your own merits and then you should obey based on your own strength. It's only because of the gift of faith in him that's given to us, the Bible says in John chapter 16, through the conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit provides, that's one of his roles in our lives, that the light bulb can go off. I'm convinced when I was uh, 16 years old and I came to know Christ, I did not go to that Christian retreat to hear the gospel. I'm going to be honest. I went for the bikinis. That is the only reason I went. Somehow I knew as soon as I got in that van, I knew that my life was going to be changed forever. I wasn't sad. I wasn't depressed. I wasn't unhappy with my life. I just knew that I would never be the same. And what followed was a week of crying from a guy who tried to act a jock, you know, average intelligence jock, I like to say not dumb jock, <laughs> who tried to act like he had it all together, who had a double life, realizing that it was only by his grace that I deserved to be separated by him, but that he not only restored me into a right relationship with him, but he rejoices over me with singing, that he rewards me with his righteousness, as if I've never sinned. I was overwhelmed. That's the gospel call. The obedience is a consequence of saving faith. It's not a condition unto salvation. Or else we would all be doomed. Because the Bible says that in Isaiah, no one is righteous. Not even, you're supposed to all go one. No one's righteous. Not even, good job. The gospel does mean that true faith in our hearts brings obedience into our lives and it spills out because we're now under this promised king. It naturally spills out into obedience. We'll see through Romans that we need to be invited by the Lord into this saving faith. We'll see how that invitation is made possible and we'll also see how beautiful and wonderful and life-giving it is to live under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ because we will be enslaved to something. It is untrue to say that any human being on the face of the earth does not worship a God, lowercase g. It can be entertainment, it can be sex, it can be academics. Everybody lives for something. But the reign and rule of Jesus Christ brings joy and it brings life. But we need to get back to the context here again because it's not only key. Romans is a great book. It's a very doctrinally heavy book. There's not a lot of stories and things like that. I mean, it is the meat and taters. I've always felt like if I could just have one book, it would probably be Romans because it very clearly spells out what it means to follow Christ, the guts of the gospel what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. So we have to make sure we understand the context here, not only to understand Romans, but also we can, so we can understand the gospel. So our next question here is, why does Paul go to Rome? The reason why this is an important question is because it's a tough question. 
I mean, Paul goes to Rome. Usually when Paul writes a letter, it's because, oh, yeah, this guy's sleeping with his stepmom or, you know, all these other just horrible things. Just all, I mean, we think churches today are dysfunctional. They can't hold a candle to Corinth or Ephesus or some of the Thessalonica, you know, very dysfunctional churches. But Rome, I mean, they seem to be pretty solid. Paul says in chapter 1 here, he describes them as called to belong to Jesus, called to be his holy people. And then catch this. I hope one day this is said about Awaken. In verse 8, it says that their faith is being reported all over the world. And that must be a pretty strong faith because there wasn't the internet. And there wasn't, And if you thought there was the internet back then, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but it was being reported all over the world. So why would Paul want to spend time with these seemingly solid believers? Why? I mean, don't we pretty much, when it comes to ministry to others, we, we tend to think problem-solution. Oh, this person is doing well, so I'm going to give this other person my time. Not so here with Paul. He lets us know why in verse 11. He says he wants to impart to them some, special, some spiritual gift to make them strong. Then in verse 12, he says he also wants to be encouraged by them. So he wants to encourage them, and he also wants them to encourage him. So Paul uses his preaching and his pastoring to encourage them, and he wants to be encouraged as well. So the application for us here is painfully obvious. These solid saints at Rome and the uber-solid Paul the Apostle need encouragement from other believers. So what do you think I'm going to say next as far as application? Then so do we, right? And so do we show up at gatherings like this and home group and other times are with believers thinking, Lord, will you stir my creativity? Will you, will you stir my intellect to think of ways that I can be an encouragement to Brady? That I can be an encouragement to Charlotte? That I'm not going to come simply because I want to hear a good message, although you always do. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> or I want to hear good worship. I want to go to be an encouragement because even Paul the Apostle knew he needed it. You know, just yesterday I went to a birthday party and Nathaniel Augustine gave me some. He's always an encourager. He is. He gave me some of the best encouragement that I've heard in a very long time. And I needed it. We're created by God to need it. Paul also shares another reason why he wanted to come to them in verse 13. He tells them that he wants to have a harvest among them. And that seems kind of weird. You know, how do you have a harvest among people? Well, there's two ways he's thinking of having a harvest here. The first is among the church. And we kind of already got to that. He wanted to encourage them, help them to grow in their walk, uh, have a, a more intimate, life-giving relationship with Jesus. But the other way he wanted to collect, bring together a harvest, was outside of the church. And we see examples of this all through Scripture. In Mark chapter 9, verse 37, this is Jesus. It says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So this harvest field that Jesus had in mind in Mark 9 and that Paul had in mind here in Romans 1 is for people who are far from Christ to introduce them to the message of the cross and then teach them to obey everything that Christ commanded. So that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to preach this gospel message to people he didn't know in a city that he didn't know. That takes a lot of courage. Why would he do that? 
It's because he felt like in verses 14 through 15, he says that he's obliged to preach the gospel to them. And that means he's in debt. That's what's meant by that. And there's two kinds of debt that are talked about in the Bible. One is, and it's the kind of debt that we know too, the two kinds of debt. One is, you know, uh, uh, Keith owes me $100. I don't owe him $100, I don't think. But, uh, and then I pay him back that $100, okay? The other kind of debt is uh, someone gives me $100 free and clear just because they want to help me out. And I'm so overwhelmed by their gracious gift that I want to pay it forward. That's what Paul has in mind here. He's so overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus Christ that he wants to pay it forward. And this is how we can see the condition of our own souls. And this gets harder the longer we follow Christ. If we find ourselves primarily being critical of other Christians, critical of our neighborhood, critical of our city, condemning those who are far from Christ around us and not weeping for them, then our soul is dangerously, dangerously unhealthy. He felt obligated. He felt in debt because he was so overwhelmed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do you guys always make me get behind in my message time-wise? I mean, go ahead. Get on your trampoline. Let's get you awake here. Uh, you know, people of, throughout time have been ashamed of the gospel. And the question for us tonight that we started with is, are you and I ashamed or eager to share the gospel? And this is, this is real. This is gut check. This isn't I'm going to put a sugar coating on it. This is Holy Spirit revealed to me my heart. Am I sharing it or am I not? We instinctively know that we share those relationships we value. That's why we're so hurt if we've ever had a friend or a romantic interest that has kept the relationship private and doesn't want to be seen in public with us. Have you ever had that? I had that in middle school. I did not enjoy that. A, quote, girlfriend who is embarrassed to be seen with me in public. We instinctively know that we keep secret those things we're ashamed of regardless of what we say with our mouths. So why are people ashamed of the gospel instead of eager to share it with others? Because many of us would say, well, Chris, and I say this many times, but then don't share. It's good news. It's the best news. Well, do you share it? Sometimes no. And I think the reason we're ashamed is that first, the gospel is insulting to people because it tells us that salvation is free and undeserved. We don't like the fact the gospel is free because we are a people who want to earn it. Nobody did this for me. I did it for myself. We don't like to be dependent on others, and we certainly don't want to tell others that, hey, you can't depend on your own decency. You are helpless. You are helplessly lost without Jesus Christ. It's not our decency that saves us. We can't good our way to God. The gospel also grates on us because by telling us that Jesus died for us, it's saying that we're so wicked, we're so lost, that God the Son had to die in our place, that it's deserving of God being killed on the cross. That that's how wicked we are. And this offends the modern ideology that self-expression and belief in innate goodness 
is central. It says that that is not true. That there's a righteousness that's the only righteousness is by faith in Christ. The gospel also insults because it tells us that being good or spiritual or religious is not enough. It says that no good person is good enough for God. But only those who come to know him through Jesus. We don't like to lose our independence. The gospel also gets on our nerves because it tells us that salvation was accomplished through Jesus' suffering and service. And our God is comfort and ease oftentimes. So to say, welcome into this salvation, into this kingdom, where you will suffer and serve in my name. Because we know that in any love relationship, it's suffering and sacrifice. That is the expression of that love. The difference with Christ is the suffering and sacrifice that he made on our behalf saves our soul. And when we do so, in his name for others, it brings them the gospel and can change their lives forever. Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God. You know, we're ashamed of those things that we think have no power. We're ashamed of those things that we think should not be displayed. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed to bring this gospel to you because it's the very power of God. So that's the next question here. What is, it, what is it about the gospel that makes it so powerful? And the answer to this question is found in what we've said is the key verse in the entire book of Romans in a summary of the gospel, a nutshell version of the gospel. It says in Romans 1.17 again, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And to, me, to be made right with someone means that you have no outstanding debts or liabilities with them. You're acceptable to the other party because your record is clean and there's nothing there to soil the relationship. Now, the righteousness of God has to be revealed because we can't discover it on our own. Again, we've said that someone who reads the gospel message but does not have the Holy Spirit illuminating their heart so that they can understand it. It's just a great teaching. It's a great man named Jesus. It's a great philosophy. It must be spiritually discerned. We don't throw our intellect to the side. It's certainly not blind faith. There are libraries of books written on why the Christian faith is trustworthy. But ultimately, it is a spiritual work that happens to help us to see our sins. But it's much more than just about our sin and then the forgiveness that Christ offers. The, the power, that's amazing. But if the story only ended there, if Christ had died for us and then the story stopped there, then we'd have only received a once-for-all-time clean slate. And then anything we did from that point on, we'd have to earn it to stay in a right standing with God to make us acceptable to him. But thankfully, he did so much more than that. You know, Jesus' salvation is even more than receiving a pardon, let's say, from death row. You're in prison, you're on death row, and you get pardoned from that, and now you're free. But you have to go out there and earn a living. You have to go out there and prove that you're something. But in the gospel, he not only frees us from death row and frees us from prison, 
But then he honors us with great rewards as if we've done something heroic. Ephesians 1 says that he's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. We, we, we can't grasp it. We, we cannot grasp the depths of his grace and the richness of the gifts that he's given to us. So on to the final question here. How not to live by faith? I think as we look at the negative, it'll help us again to understand the powerful relationship we have to the gospel. It says again in Romans 1.17 that the righteous will live by faith. And not living by faith is the root of every sin for those who know Christ and for those who don't. For example, those who live according to what they feel to be true. Let's say it's, well, I have this kind of view on sex or justice or money or you name the issue because it feels right to me. When people only live by the compass of their feelings and reject God, they feel that they're okay people, so they, rem- they reject the message that they're sinful and need a savior. When moralistic people pick up religion of some sort, they either become anxious because they realize they can't live up to their own standards, or they become prideful because they think they already have lived up to their own standards. And their anxiety or pride is a refusal to believe the gospel, the message that they're so sinful that only Jesus can rescue them. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up here. When Christ followers sin, it's always, it always involves forgetting that they cannot save themselves. Only Jesus can. Because the gospel must be fresh to us every day. There are many Christians out there who are, they are doing a detriment for the gospel. I just heard of, uh, with my involvement with SDP, I have a small group of those who are in our summer discipleship program over to my house. And... Uh, we're talking through some things, and someone shared a story that they were out sharing the gospel, and a pastor, a man who claimed to be a pastor, told them they shouldn't be out sharing because they're too young, and they don't understand enough of the Bible. So I heard this message, and I got my Red Rider BB gun out of the... No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. <laughs> but when we lose, when we lose the sense of our need and Jesus' rescue, and the righteousness that he's given to us. It becomes boring, stage one. We become judgmental, stage two. Stage three, we become outright antagonistic towards other, towards any other believer who's not just like us. We must maintain a firm grasp that only Jesus can save us, or we'll start overworking out of fear of failing God, or we'll become depressed because we have failed God, and that's because we've forgotten that we cannot earn our own righteousness, but that in God's eyes, we're already righteous. We can't, we can't have a more right standing with him right now that we do at this very moment if we know and love Jesus. Now, it may mean practically we're not walking in that and we'll suffer the consequences for that, but positionally, we are right before him if we know and love Jesus. 
The gospel will always cause offense because it reveals our deepest need that we're helpless to meet. So we'll always be tempted to be ashamed of it. That I don't have my act together and I'm not good enough. The opposite of being ashamed of the gospel is not a willingness to share. It's an eagerness to share. And Paul was eager. And as this letter of Romans is unpacked, we'll see that. We'll see the beauty of the gospel. And we'll, we'll hear the eagerness in Paul's voice to implore us to do likewise. Are we eager to share and therefore actively sharing the gospel or are we ashamed of the gospel and as a result, silent? You have the easiest, and I have the, if you're not actively sharing the gospel, we have the easiest opportunity that will ever be provided through IFI. Desperate people who are new to our country who need a friend who will love them and care for them. And in teaching them English, they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, the Spirit uses us walking out in obedience, even when we don't feel like it, to stir our hearts and breed in us an eagerness to share the gospel. Sometimes he brings the eagerness first, but don't wait. Obey. It may be IFI. It may be something else. The gospel is the power of God. May we eagerly share it and not be ashamed. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we all confess here right now collectively as a body, every last one of us, we have all been ashamed. We have all been ashamed of your gospel. And Lord, thank you that it's not our boldness that saves us. It's not our willingness to share or the number of times we share that have saved us. Lord, it is only your grace. And thank you for your patience with us, Lord, the enormous sacrifice you made and the fact that Lord, all too often we just confess that we care about ourselves and our reputation more than we do your gospel. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness that you've separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. And may that separation, Lord, cause us to run towards the righteous life that you've called us into. Lord, and to fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.